Have you ever noticed that um, life is often very challenging, very difficult, especially when you decide to take a step of faith to try and follow God, uh, do something new, open your house for community group, go volunteer to serve in the next-gen ministry? Um, it's almost like there's something working against you. It's almost like there's some kind of force that comes against you or your family. You know, why is that? Why, why, why is it that when you try and follow God, God doesn't just make it so easy? Why is it difficult? Why does it feel like it's a fight to follow after God? We're going to understand why those questions exist, and even more importantly, we'll provide some answers to them today as we open up the the word, and we discover that the Apostle Paul himself dealt with these issues. And we're going to look through the eyes of Paul and expand a little bit on some other scriptures outside of 1 Thessalonians, which is where we're at this morning. If you're, if you're new to next, we are journeying through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians, and we come to the end of chapter 2 today, and um, we're going to find out that life is a fight, and it's not always easy to follow God. And it's nothing new. It's what the Apostle Paul experienced 2,000 years ago. And what do you do when it doesn't work out? And most importantly, how do we have victory in this fight? And that's what we're going to find out today, that we're in a war, that we're in the middle of a war. And if you don't know you're in a war, if you don't even know you're in a fight, you're at a disadvantage. If you find yourself in a fight and the other person's ready to fight and you don't even know you're in a fight, guess what? <laughs> you're going to lose. And so... How do we get ready? And how do we know? And how do we know our enemy? And how do we win? First Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're at. We're going to pick right up in verse 17. Stan left off last week in verse 16. And uh, before I give you verse 17, just to remind you to set the stage as to where we're at, the Apostle Paul, he, he was the, the world's kind of first missionary, um, bringing the message of Jesus. He traveled around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and then he took a second trip and he came over into Greece and he began to plant churches in Europe, right? The first churches started in Europe and he came to a town called Thessalonica and started to talk about Jesus and how Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again from the grave and some believed and some didn't believe and he actually got ran out of town in the middle of the night. He wasn't there very long, just three weeks and they chased him out of town, and he had to leave. And he didn't leave the way he wanted to leave, certainly. He, he wanted to stay longer, and his heart was broken. He saw great fruit with these new Christians and then got forced out of town. And now he, he traveled down to the southern part of Greece to the town of Corinth, and he wrote them a letter back to make sure they're doing okay. That's the letter we're studying today, 1 Thessalonians. And here's what he says in verse 17. He says, but as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. Right, let's just pause here and just make sure we don't miss what's going on. Right? Um, for Paul, he was crushed that he had to leave uh, his newly found believers in the situation that he left them in, right? And, and so for Paul, and he, and this, uh, this whole letter is, is very tender. It, is, it gives us a picture. 
if you haven't done it yet, do this. You should do it multiple times, but do this at least once. Sit down and read all of 1 Thessalonians in one sitting, right? It's five chapters. It'll take you 18 minutes, okay? So it's not like it's a long read. Um, You just kind of get the sense and just listen as Paul's heart comes out, right? You just see his, his heart and it paints a picture of what life should really be like inside the church, we all have pictures of church and comes from our background and how you grew up and the type of church you were raised in, whether you went to church or didn't go to church, or maybe you saw church on TV and had a picture. Like We all come with a picture of church. And what I want to suggest to you is that you maybe take all that, put it aside for a second, sit down, read 1 Thessalonians and get a picture of what it means to be the church. A newly formed kind of, you know, unpolluted yet by any stuff. They're only a couple months old. And here's the instructions, and here's Paul's heart of how to be the church. And for Paul, it was all about people. And he longed to be with them. And, and it's a picture of what church should be. It should be, in your heart, my heart, we said, man, I, I, I want to be with these people. Because together we're the body. And, and so it's interesting, this this phrase, this word, he says, after we were forced to leave you. It's, it's actually one Greek word. Forced to leave you is one Greek word. And it's only used once in the whole New Testament. And it's used right here. It's an interesting word. I, I translated it into English for you. Here's what it is. You can put that next slide up. That's the Greek word. Forced to leave you. You see a word in the middle of it? What do you see? Orphan. That's the word, uh, aforphanize, all right? It's the idea of forced to make you an orphan. And this is, this is the word that Paul uses. He says, it broke our hearts. Remember, earlier on, he talked about how he was a spiritual father and a spiritual mother to them. And, and so he's like, I'm sorry that we made you spiritual orphans. Like, as a spiritual parent, his heart broke that he had to leave his kids, his spiritual kids, in this state, in this condition. And again, it just kind of gives a picture of what the church should be. It's spiritual mamas and papas helping spiritual younger brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, right? I'm not talking about little kids and older kids. I'm talking about us as we do life together. It's being in relationship with one another and helping each other face-to-face become more like Jesus, which is why a couple weeks ago, we rolled out this kind of new initiative to you. And and we've been thinking about how do we help next be the church and take next steps to look more like Jesus? How do we help this picture of spiritual mothers and fathers and maturing and mentoring? It's called discipleship, right? And it's the idea of discipleship. And so we rolled out to you this, I just want to come back to it real quick and just encourage you to please get in this. We rolled out to you the idea of of what we're just calling the discipleship resource center, I think we call it. What do we call it? Yes, discipleship resource center. And and so remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago if you weren't here. The idea was that we picked um, it, it's actually 20-some topics. Some of them have, like, number three. There's five subcategories, right? or six subcategories there. So, so there's 20-some topics 
of, of all spances of the Christian life. And I encouraged you. I said, listen, and we put them all out here in the bookshelf. This is what's on our bookshelves out here. And, and so not for you to take, right? Don't take them. Don't, don't hork our resources, okay? What I'm asking you to do is to just look at them. You can page through them and then order them and get with somebody and say, let's go through this together. Let's grow together and, and pick a category that is of interest to you. And, and I made a statement a couple weeks ago, and I challenged you all to do this. I want you all to do this. You all know someone you can get together and do this with. And, and somebody said, Joe, but what if they don't? Like, what if you're sitting there, and maybe this is you, you're sitting there and you're saying, I, I want to grow, I want to learn, I don't know who to do this, I don't have anyone to do this with. And I don't have the answer for it yet, we don't have the answer for it yet, because you know, I, I have a suggestion that I'm going to do. I just came up with it the other day. I didn't tell anybody else, and I'm creating work for Deb, but that's okay because we all know she gets stuff done, right? And so here's, what, here's my idea of what, what we can do in the meantime. If you're here and saying, I want to do this, I don't know who to do this with. I got two solutions. One is, is, is no work for Deb, and the other one is, is work for Deb. You can help Deb out by doing step one. Get into a community group. Get into a community group. Join a group, and you're going to find people that you can journey with and do this together, all right? Step two is you're saying, listen, I can't. I work nights or I schedule or whatever, kids, or it doesn't work out. Step two is this. Send us an email at info at nextcc.org, info at nextcc, nextcommunitychurch.org, right, which a.k.a. goes to Deb, right? And so here's what you're going to do is you just put your name and put what category is of interest to you. And, and, and what, what we can do is if we get a couple people that say, listen, I'm interested in category 12. I want to grow in learning about how to do prayer and fasting. We can send an email to all the prayer and fasting people and say, listen, y'all had an interest in that. Figure out a time. Get together. Here's our three books we recommend. And figure out how to help each other face-to-face to look more like Jesus. Because here's the ultimate goal, right? We want to move discipleship from a classroom mentality to a relationship mentality. Why? Because that's the way people grow best, through relationships. And we wanted to move from just head knowledge, from information, to actually transformation. That's our hope and our goal, is that discipleship would move from information to imitation, right? That you'd be close enough, life on life with one another, that you'd grow together. And that's a picture, you're going to see it, just read First Thessalonians and you see, this is what it means to be the church, right? I mean, if I was going to, um, if I was going to teach you how to play golf, some of you might laugh. You say, no, I've seen you play golf, Joe, we don't want you to teach us how to play golf, right? But let's just pretend, if I was going to teach you how to play golf, how disappointed, I'm like, hey, next week, next week, all right, it's the big day, I'm going to teach you how to play golf. And you show up, and you're ready to play golf, and you got your little golf outfit on, and you're there, and I hand you a book. And it's the history of golf and the rules of golf. You're going to be like, I don't, I don't want to do this, right? What do you want to do? You want to play. You want to go to the course. You want to at least get to the range, right, and get so that we can figure out, figure out how to do all of this. If you were going to teach me how to, how to cook, right, um, you, you show up and you hand me a, a cookbook. Like, no, no, I want to I go to your kitchen. I want to spend time. Show me how to do this. I don't know what's going on here. Maybe I should grab another mic, uh, a handheld mic. Somebody's got a mic. This one? 
Well, I don't know where Landon went. <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe you could bring me, let's see how it keeps going. Maybe you could bring me a handheld mic just as a backup. The idea is this. You got to be up close, skin on skin, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, right? Figure out how to do this discipleship together. Thanks, bro. Just appeared out of nowhere. It does it all. Nice work. I'm going to keep using this. If it happens again, I'll switch over to the handheld one, all right? Um, so why, why, why did Paul get run out of town? And more importantly, why couldn't he come back? Why couldn't he get back, right? He says, well, I, want, I long to be with you face to face, right? Why couldn't he get back? Verse 18 says this. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. There it is. Satan hindered us. I'm going to switch over here. All right, there we go. Recent, a recent survey um, of Christians, Christian, church-going people, 60% of those surveyed agreed with the statement, Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. 60%, in case you missed it, of Christians, those that are currently going to church, 60% of them said, we don't believe the devil's a real person. And is it any reason, or any wonder, rather, that the church is losing ground when 60%, a majority of the church, doesn't even believe the enemy is real? It's no wonder we're getting our butts kicked. It's no wonder we're losing ground. It's no wonder that it seems like evil is winning. We don't even think... There's an enemy. We don't even believe he's real. It's some kind of Tom and Jerry with ears and a tail and pitchfork cartoon character. It's a symbol of evil. And the Bible makes it so clear that we are in a battle. And it's a battle that you cannot escape with an enemy that you don't see. But you know very much that you're in it. And sooner or later, every Christian comes to the realization, I hope so, church, that the Christian life and living the Christian life is more like living on a battleground than it is like living on a playground. And a lot of times we like the playground mentality. We want to have a nice life, a comfortable life, an enjoyable life, a fun life. But listen, the way you think and act when you live on a playground and the way that you would think and act when you would live on a battleground are completely different ways of thinking and acting. And if 60% of the church doesn't even believe the enemy's real, and it's just about having your best life now and living good and trying to just enjoy life, man, we're, we got to wake our, ourselves up here. And, and, and so I just want to push pause on this verse and, and, and talk a little bit about those last four words, but Satan hindered us. And, and just do a little bit of a rabbit trail and, and talk about spiritual warfare and talk about the enemy and talk, I mean, the apostle Paul got shut down by the enemy, right? First off, how did he even know it was that? 
right? How did, how did he know it was Satan hindering him? I mean, maybe he just couldn't, you know, book the right flight on Expedia, and it's like, oh, it's not working out. It's like bad luck, or like, how did he know, how did he know it just wasn't a string of bad luck? How did he know it was the enemy coming against him? Even having spiritual discernment to understand the difference between bad luck and the enemy coming against you. And so when it comes even to Satan, you, you might adopt one of two views, and I'm going to invite all of us to move to the middle on these two extremes, right? The one extreme is this, is that you don't think about Satan, you don't worry about Satan, you, you're not even like sure he's super, super real, maybe you believe in him, but like, and so you're, you're so not even worried or thought, thinking about the enemy that the thought of spiritual battles and therefore taking a spiritual fight posture it's not even on your radar. Or the other extreme is you are very much aware of Satan. As a matter of fact, you think almost every bad thing that happens, you're stuck in traffic. It's like, get behind me, Satan, right? Like Satan's caused a traffic jam to take you off, right? right? Like you and I are that important. That that's why, like, right? And every little bad thing that happens to you is the enemy coming against you. And I rebuke you and, I, and all these things. And it's, it's just part of living in life, right? And so I would suggest that if you find yourselves on either one of those two extremes, that you come to the middle, that we don't be so obsessed and give him so much credit for everything, but at the same time, you don't even never think about him and don't realize that, oh, he is a roaring lion looking to devour you. And so come to the middle here, understand that the Christian life is more like living on a battleground than a playground, and let's learn a little bit about our enemy this morning. Let me give you some verses that we'll just read, we'll rabbit trail a little bit, and then we'll come back to Thessalonians and we'll end. Um, first, let's learn about his name. Names mean something, all right? Do you know, anyone know what the name Satan means? All right? Adversary. It actually means adversary, right? And so it is the one that is coming against us. Listen, the enemy is real, and here's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy this church. He wants to destroy this community. He wants to stop the gospel of Jesus, and he will do anything in his power to prevent you from stepping forward in your faith with God. He's an adversary against you. You are in a fight. Whether you realize it or not, you'd be better off to realize it now and take a fighting posture. You are in a fight, right? First Peter chapter 5, Peter says this, be sober-minded, be alert. Like sober-minded means like clear-headed. Like be awake to the idea, be alert that there's an enemy out there. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Church, we got to wake up. It's battle time. We got to get off the playground, get onto the battlefield. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul describes it like this If our gospel is veiled, in other words, the good news about Jesus, it's, it's veiled. People can't, they can't see it, they can't get it. They think you and I are crazy for doing what we're doing, even right now this morning. They, just, they don't see it. If our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age, lowercase g, that's one of the nicknames of Satan. He's the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why do unbelievers act like unbelievers? Because they're blind. 
They're spiritually blind by the enemy who is not letting them see and get and understand the beauty of Jesus and salvation comes through faith in Christ. And so they, they you know, that, that, that sister, that brother, that uncle, that family member that you've been trying to share Jesus with and plant seeds and trying to love and trying to share the gospel with and they just keep shutting you down, shutting you down. That person is not the enemy. It's the enemy that's behind them that's blinding them from seeing and understanding the truth of the gospel. Ephesians 2 says, you, this is him talking to the church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked in your BC days, in your before Christ days, when you lived like a spiritually blind person, you were spiritually dead. Following the course of this world, listen, there is a path, there is a course that the enemy has mapped out. Does it seem like our world is going downhill? You want to know why? It's because the enemy is behind the stage with the puppet strings, directing the course of this world, and it's why it's going the way he's going. He's the God of this age. Here's another name for him. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so... Those that don't act like us, think like us, believe like us, talk like us, vote like us, are not the enemy. They're the captives of the evil one who's blinded them. They are the very battleground that is being fought over. And so we've got to understand who our fight is against. 1 John chapter 5 says, We know anyone born of God does not continue to sin the one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. So listen, this is not to stir you up to get you scared this morning. We don't need to be scared. He's a, he's a prowling lion that Jesus has already tamed. Right? Jesus has already defeated. And so we don't walk around scared of the lion, but you better be aware there's a lion walking around outside. Right? It says this, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So does it, does it seem like there's an agenda in some of the institutions of the world? Does it seem like our political system is just so broken? Does it seem like our educational system is just going sideways? Does it seem like financially we're just going the wrong? Yup. You want to know why? Because the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And then he fights dirty. He fights dirty. 2 Corinthians 11 says, For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He wears disguises. He's going to trick you. So that which seems good, or that which seems right, or that which may even seem like, oh, God's opening a door. Oh, if God didn't want me to do it, he wouldn't allow me to do it, right? And we, we justify some things that the enemy puts in our head, disguising himself as an angel of light. He's a deceiver and our adversary, and he's temporarily in control of the world. And you better realize that we're in a fight. And his main activity is to stop you from following Jesus, loving Jesus, and sharing Jesus. I, I believe he uses two main weapons. 
I think there's two main weapons that the enemy uses that you need to be aware of. That when these two things show up in your life, it's, it's, it's a good chance it's the enemy behind them. I know it's not God, so there's a good chance it's the enemy behind these two things. Here's, here's the two weapons of the enemy, is, is lies and fear are the two main weapons of the enemy. I want to talk to you a little bit about each one of these, lies and fear, two main weapons of the enemy. First is fear, right? Um, you don't have to read through Scripture much, Old Testament, New Testament, to understand that one of the commands of God that has shared so much is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Think about it. If we're supposed to be in a spiritual battle, what good is a soldier that's cowering in the trenches, shaking with fear, can't even point his gun at the enemy. He's so afraid to step out and to engage in the battle. And so fear is a major tactic of the enemy to keep God's people paralyzed, to keep you shrunk back, to keep you from stepping out and engaging, to keep you from sharing the gospel, to keep you from ever joining a community group. Well, they might find out the real me. I don't want to go there and let them know the real me. And, and so you just keep all your stuff hidden in the darkness, never bringing it out to the light because you're afraid to let people know the real you. And there's this whole thing in the church that like, well, we can't let people, we got to pretend like we got it all together and like we're good and that we got no issues and no problems. Let's just all admit, let's just do it right now. Everyone raise your hand. Say, I got stuff. Look at your neighbor. Say, you got stuff. All right? All right. Some of you enjoyed the second part way more than the first part. We all got stuff. So let's just stop pretending like we're all just perfect and nobody sins. Let's, let's bring our stuff out into the light where the Son of God can purify it and blast it and get it out of our life. But as long as it stays hidden. And so he'll just use fear. He'll keep you trapped in fear from drawing close to the things of God. And then, and then lies. Oh, this guy's such a liar, and we get trapped in lies. Some of us are believing lies. We don't even know we're believing lies, but we're living out lies. Right? He's so good at this. John chapter 8 says, you are of the Father. You are of your Father, the devil. This is Jesus speaking, by the way, to the spiritual leaders of the day. In case you missed it, he just called them sons of the devil. So, you know, like Jesus was a nice guy, but he didn't mince words sometimes. He called it as he saw it, and he spoke strongly. He said, you're of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. And it's the oldest trick in the book that he's been doing since our parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, when he came to them and said, did God really say you can't eat of any of these He got them to believe the lie that God is holding back. God, no, that's not what's going to happen to you. God's going to know that if you do eat this, then your eyes are going to, you're going to become like God. He doesn't, right? And so he'll get you to lie, believe lies about three areas. We've talked about this, but let me just remind you. He's going to get you to believe lies about yourself. I'm no good. 
um, what, what could God do with me? I'm kind of a spiritual loser. He'll come and he'll whisper lies. You call yourself a Christian? Oh, you might fool everybody else. You're not fooling me. You're not fooling yourself. You know what's going on in your head, your heart. He'll, he'll get you to believe lies about yourself. You're so unlovable. You know what? You're always going to be alone. You know what? You're just always going to be a loser. You're so dumb. You're just stupid. He'll whisper those lies to you. He'll get you to believe lies about yourself. He'll get you to believe lies about God. Oh, if God loves you, would he let you go through this? If God loves you, would he have let your parent go through that? Oh, yeah, tell me about how good God is. Tell me about how powerful God is. He'll get you to believe lies about yourself. He'll get you to believe lies about God. And he'll get you to believe lies about each other. Oh, you'll never be able to trust them again. Some people want to say that, well, I thought you're saying fear and lies are his two greatest weapons. What about temptation? He's called the tempter. Isn't temptation? Yeah, that's, that's a weapon he has. But think about it even this way. Even his temptations are to get you to believe a lie. Listen, if you just turn to that bottle, it's going to make your problems go. It's going to make you all just feel better, right? It's a temptation. He'll dangle something out, but it's a lie that that's going to work. Or, hey, you know what? Find a better source than God to deal with your problems. So turn over here, and he'll dangle any one of hundreds of temptations in front of us to get you to turn away from the source of what could truly help you with life. <clears throat> and so all temptation is is a lie. And so you boil it all down, his two greatest tactics are fear and lies. And so listen, I want you to just stop and I want you to do a little self-analysis and I want you to invite God into this and it's got to go way longer than we're going to do here this morning. I want you to sit with God this week and let him examine your life for fear and lies because those are little stronghold areas where you've given an open door for the enemy to come in and set up base camp right in your own heart, right? And say, I'm no longer going to walk in fear. And I'm no longer going to walk in lies. But in order for you to not walk in fear and not walk in lies, you've got to invite the Holy Spirit to come and expose those areas in your life. Because sometimes you don't even know. You don't even know you're walking in fear. You don't even know you're believing a lie. For some of us, we've been living this way for 25 years. And we've just gotten used to it. We've gotten used to how to walk with a spiritual limp. God wants to come in and bring healing. But you've got to invite them in. And so, how do we have victory here? In five minutes, all right? Five minutes. Here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to meditate this week on what I think is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible on how to have spiritual victory in a spiritual war. Right, And that is Ephesians chapter 6. And we can't cover all of what I would love to cover today. I'll just highlight a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 6 is the secret to winning the battle. Right, The secret to having victory. We'll just read verse 10. He says here, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Listen, it is God's will for you to be strong. It's, it's every dad's will for their kids to be strong, right? 
And, and, and every dad wants to do what they can to help their kid be strong. And God is a good father, a much better father, much better parent than any one of us. And so it is his will for you to be strong. And even what the Apostle Paul says is be strong. Notice the next three words. Say it with me. In, in the Lord. So listen, he's not saying, come on, man up, woman up. Come on, you got to get up, pick yourself up. It's not about you. Your strength doesn't come from you. Your strength comes from in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. <coughs> you got to not think the battle belongs to you. You got to know the battle belongs to the Lord. Uh, let, me give you, let me give you a spiritual battle equation. It's real simple. Here it is. Proximity equals power. It's so much more powerful. There it is, proximity. <laughs> we'll work on second service. We'll get it in second service. We'll nail it. It'll be really powerful. Right? Proximity equals power. The closer you are to our Father, the stronger you're going to be because your strength comes from in the Lord, which is why, church, we're just going to continue to tell you to be men and women of the book, that you've got to sit with the book and read the book and meditate on the book and get God's word in you, spend time with the Father. You can't expose lies if you don't even know the truth. You'll just swallow lies because you don't know the difference between the truth and the lie because you're not putting God's word in you. And so you've got to sit with God's word and let God's spirit fill you up so that when and then you go out into the, the battleground of the enemy that you're strong in his strength, not in your own strength. And that something comes at you and you're like, boom, get out of here. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to swallow that. I'm not going to digest that. I'm not going to meditate on that. I'm not going to spin my little wheel on that. I'm not even going to let it in there, right? You can start deflecting lies and opportunities for fear all over the place because God has given you the ability to have spiritual discernment. But you got to get that strength from the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and his might. Let's get back to um, let's get back to Thessalonians and we'll close with this. Uh, I'll have the worship team come. I'm gonna jump ahead, Marianne, to, to chapter two, verse 19. So the chapter ends with Paul saying, listen. I wanted to get back to you guys. I wanted to see you face to face. We couldn't get there. Satan stopped us. And then he says this. I love this. He says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Again, I told you in the very first week, this is a book that is all about Jesus' return. Every chapter ends with Paul mentioning the return of Christ. So he has a picture in mind. We're in a battle right now, but the king is coming back. He's going to come back. And then he says, so listen, when the king comes back, what's going to be our joy or our hope or our crown when the king comes back? Is it not you, he says, next verse, he says, indeed, you are our glory and joy. In other words, here's what Paul has in mind. He's like, it's a battle now, and it's 
it's hard and we're fighting the good fight of the faith, but the king is going to come back. And he says, so what am I living for? What's my joy? What's my crown? I can't wait for when Jesus comes back. And Thessalonians, you are standing there before Jesus. And he's like, that's because, God, I followed you and you let me be a part of your plan. And I was able to share the gospel. And look what happened. You're my crown. He has in mind, remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a bunch of Greeks the originators of the Olympic Games, they understood the idea of a crown. It was the prize that was given at the end. You get the, an ivy wreath that would go upon their head for winning the games. And Paul says, I'm talking about a different kind of crown. My crown is going to be people. People that when Jesus comes back, they're people that are standing there. In a sense, Paul's like, that's my trophy case. Those are my crowns, not some wreath, not some trophy people. That's what I'm, that's my joy. What am I living for here in the earth? To see people get saved, to be ready for when the king comes back. And so when the king comes back, they're standing there and he says, that's my joy. That's my crown. You Thessalonians are what I'm doing this for. And it made me stop and think this week of the people that might be there that I've shared Jesus with and say, it's all worth it at the end to receive that crown. Like, they're my joy. And then, as always happens, I say, right? You all know the Bible will preach sermons to you when you just sit and read it. And every week, the sermon gets preached to me first, and then about 90% of that just comes right back to you and says, so share that with the church. And so, who will be there for you? Because you stepped out into the battleground and you opened your mouth about Jesus and you loved them and you served them and you cared for them and you prayed for them and they shut you down and you said, not today, Satan, I ain't giving up yet. And you came back and you still prayed and you waited and you looked for open doors and you shared a seed and you continued to pray and love and serve and patiently waited. Who's gonna be your crown, your joy that's gonna be standing there because when Jesus comes back, they're like, oh. What if this year, you just said, Lord, give me one. Give me one. One person that can be my, my joy, my crown, my glory unto the Lord. We're in a battle. Make no mistake about it. Let me read this quote and we're done. There's a spiritual battle presently raging for the souls of billions of men and women around the world. The scope of this battle is universal. There is no place on this earth where this war is not being waged. The stakes in this spiritual battle are eternal. There is a true God over this world who desires all people to experience everlasting joy in heaven. And there is a false God in this world who desires all people to experience everlasting suffering in hell. The enemy in this spiritual battle is formidable. He is like a lion looking for his kill, and he is dead set on defaming God's glory and destroying God's people. Where the church exists, he works to draw us in through temptation and discourage us in trial. He lures us with possessions and prosperity and lulls us to sleep with comforts and complacency. He deceives, deters, and distracts the church from knowing the wonder of Christ and declaring the worth of Christ to the ends of the earth. 
We do not have time to waste. We do not have time to play artificial games in contemporary culture or wage artificial wars in comfortable churches. Every Christian in every church has been called to engage in this war. And I pray next community church that we will pick up our guns. That's not a metaphor for guns. That's pick up our swords. Let me say that. It's a little bit more politically sensitive. It's the final weapon in Ephesians 6 that Paul says. Actually, it's the only weapon. Every other weapon of the spiritual armor is defensive except the sword of the spirit. You get what I'm saying. Let me pray. We'll close in worship. God, we just need your help. Open our eyes. Change our hearts. Expose lies and fear in us, God. I pray we wouldn't go limping through life, hiding lies and cowering in fear. God, break us of that, I pray. Holy Spirit, come expose that in love and bring us into spiritual wholeness, we pray. We turn our eyes to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's stand, church.